At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. All rise. Welcome to, to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here at the end of Route 66, downtown Santa Monica. Please be seated. We're here in the heart of Silicon Beach, and we have a great show for you as usual. Um, we are going to be talking about an interesting report issued by Amnesty International raising the question of whether Twitter violates human rights. Um, in their failure to protect women from abuse. And um, we have with us Asminia Drodia, and she's talking to us from London Town. Asminia, are you with us? I am. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you very much for joining us. And I know it's late in the day there. Um, could you tell us just briefly what it is that you do with Amnesty and maybe a little bit about Amnesty for those who are unfamiliar? Sure. So um, I am a researcher in the technology and human rights team based in the Amnesty Secretariat office in London. Um, Amnesty is a global human rights organization. Uh, we work on different human rights issues, whether they be on the nexus between technology and human rights, um, civil and political rights, as well as other economic, social and cultural rights. Um, and we're a global movement. Uh, we're a campaigning organization with over seven million supporters um, globally. And I, I noticed that you you have a, a technology section. Is this relatively new in, in reviewing technology from a human rights perspective? Yeah, the team started about three years ago, I believe, um, and we work on an array of different issues. We look at, um, you know, privacy in the context of human rights, such as surveillance issues. We look at encryption issues, um, online violence and abuse. So we're, you know, looking at the use of artificial intelligence um, and the human rights impact of that. Um, so we're looking at an array of issues, looking at the link between technology and human rights. Now, this is an issue that we've covered in our past. You know, for our listeners may recall, we had in 2016, we had um, Fusion, a reporter from Fusion, Kristen V. Brown, talking about online trolls. Mm -hmm. And um, she had written an article about it. And one thing she talked about was in the article was how Twitter responded to death threats that she received. And it was somewhat inconsistent. Um, and then last year, we had uh, Michelle Ferrier, who actually founded a group called Trollbusters mm -hmm. to help reporters deal with trolls on Twitter, especially women reporters, as because it becomes so problematic. And when just before I noticed your report, uh, I follow a, a number of journalists both on Twitter and on Facebook, and a prominent American um, journalist was um, Joan Walsh, which just exasperated about the abuse that she was getting on Twitter and the fact that Twitter was doing nothing. And so... Then in March, I saw the report, Toxic Twitter, Violence and Abuse Against Women Online. Um, what led to um, taking on that project? How did, was it decided to investigate Twitter? Um, so, you know, Amnesty has been looking at gender um, and violence against women issues for a number of years. Um, and, you know, the issue of violence and abuse against women online um, is not 
new in the sense of it's, uh, you know, it's been happening for a while now. And um, one of the reasons why Amnesty started working on this issue is because we saw that there were lots of reports on this issue, um, you know, especially in the mainstream media, especially by prominent uh, female journalists. But um, very few of the pieces or the analysis had a had a human rights analysis to what was happening. And we really wanted to show that violence and abuse against women on social media platforms um, isn't just, um, you know, a mere annoyance or something that's unfortunate that's happening to women, but that it's part of the wider systematic discrimination against women um, and that, you know, uh, there is a human rights impact on how women are experiencing violence and abuse um, and also look at the the responsibility of social media platforms to address the concerns. Um, Go ahead. No, yeah. So, you know, we've been researching the issue of violence and abuse against women on social media platforms for about 18 months. um, And that has included both qualitative and quantitative research about women's experiences on social media platforms, about the scale and the nature and the impact of violence and abuse directed towards women on Twitter. Um, But why Twitter in particular? Why not Instagram or, God forbid, MySpace? (laughs) Sure. No, I mean, I think... the six people using that. (laughs) No, I, I think it's really important to, um, you know, stress that violence and abuse against women happens to women across, you know, unfortunately across all social media platforms. Um, but the research focuses on Twitter because, first of all, it is one of the world's largest social media companies. And their response to this problem is really critical um, in how platforms are tackling this issue. Um, Also, many of the women that we interviewed during our initial research in 2017, um, and the women that we interviewed were uh, mainly female public figures in the UK and the US, um, so politicians, journalists, activists, bloggers, writers, games developers. And many of them repeatedly highlighted that Twitter is a place where violence and abuse against them is widespread. It's a place where abuse against them thrives. And it's where they feel that the remedies to address this um, are inadequate. Um, And it's also important to sort of recognize that the very nature of Twitter as a social media platform encourages conversations among strangers. Uh, It provides up to the minute reactions, um, you know, uh, which encourages people to engage in debates and conversations with each other. Um, And that means that public figures are often bypassing traditional media outlets to engage in conversations. But what our research found is that when some women use this platform in this way, um, you know, just to express themselves online, they will face, you know, a very targeted violence and abuse against them, often in relation to their gender or another aspect of their identity. Now, we we have a clip. It's um, from Sei Akiwowo, who was the uh, youngest black female counselor in Newham, which I guess is a town in England. Can you tell us yeah, about her local, first? It's a local, um, yeah, so Newham is a local borough in, in London, um, and she was a local politician, a local counselor, um, and we interviewed her for the research, and she faced an, um, you know, a barrage of abuse um, on Twitter and other social media platforms after a video of her speaking at the European Parliament uh, went viral. Can we play that clip? Okay, so on Twitter and on Uh, other social media platforms. I was referred to as a monkey, as a chimp, as an ape, various forms of the N-word. I was told to eat S-H-I-T, that all Africans live in mud huts. I was also uh, asked which STD will end my miserable life, um, to get lynched, stupid nog, and if all whites agreed that the best course of action would be to exterminate blacks, we could do it in a week. Um, quite shocking. Uh, how representative was that of some of the comments you were seeing? Um, it, it was unfortunately incredibly representative of the comments um, and the the violence and abuse that so many of the women and the non-binary people that I interviewed experienced. Um, I think Shay, as a young black woman, really um, highlights the intersectional nature of abuse that women experience on Twitter. So that's abuse that targets the different identities that a woman may have, such as um, you know, their sexual orientation, their race, their gender identity, their religion, um, you know, disability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's really important that any aspect or analysis of online violence and abuse against women has to be intersectional because you know, the abuse that women face um, not, doesn't only target their gender, but can also target different aspects of their identity. And any response to solving this issue must also be, you know, intersectional and take that into account. I think it was in your study that there was a, in the recent um, UK elections, there was one black 
um, PM who was particularly singled out and received uh, a lion's share of all the, the hate comments of, of all that all PMs received. Is my yeah. remembering this correctly? Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Amnesty um, did a study, um, a, a small research um, analysis in September 2017 about, um, it, which was in, and it was looking at um, abuse against female parliamentarians in the UK that were active on Twitter from January 1st to June 8th, 2017. And June 8th was um, a general election in the UK. Um, and we basically used machine learning to analyze abuse, uh, abusive tweets sent to female MPs active on Twitter during that time. And what we found was, um, you know, shocking, but unfortunately not surprising. And we found that Diane Abbott, who is um, the shadow home secretary um, in the UK and is also the first black female uh, member of parliament. Uh, she was elected into parliament about 31 years ago. She alone received 45.14% um, of all abuse um, sent to female MPs in the six weeks leading up to the UK elections um, and just under a third of all abuse um, in the entire period of a analysis. So that meant that she received 10 times more abuse than any other female MP um, in the six weeks leading up to the election, um, and eight times more in the entire period of analysis. To what extent is this mechanized is through use of bots and you know, other mechanisms? So, you know, I think in terms of who the perpetrators are, it wasn't really something that um, Amnesty really focused on. Um, I think, you know, the abuse and the violence against women can come from a variety of sources um, or perpetrators. Um, but I think for us, the really important aspect was looking at the human rights impact of the, of the violence and the abuse that women face, um, and really trying to understand what forms of violence and abuse are women facing when they go on Twitter? What are their experiences when they try to express themselves? How is Twitter responding? And when Twitter's response is inadequate, uh, what human rights implications does that have on how women can express themselves online? And what our and what our research found is that, you know, the company has been failing to protect women users from violence and abuse on the platform, and it's failing to res respect women's rights online as a result because of its inadequate and ineffective response to violence and abuse. And <coughs> so what exactly has been the, the impact on the women targeted? Sure. So I think what we found is that, you know, violence and abuse against women is rife on Twitter um, with, you know, as I mentioned, women who face abuse for their multiple um, and intersecting identities, um, you know, offline, for example, also experiencing this form of discrimination online. Um, and the, when we're talking about violence and abuse, you know, the, the research is looking at um, direct or indirect threats of physical or sexual violence, uh, discriminatory abuse targeting a person's gender or another form of their identity, uh, targeted harassment, so repeated harassment against an individual, as well as privacy violations, so uh, violations such as doxing, which is when someone uploads private information um, about an individual publicly uh, with sort of the intention to you know, create um, alarm or distress. So if someone were to upload your email address or your home address, um, as well as um, someone um, uploading private or intimate images of a woman without her consent. Um, so, you know, we actually uh, conducted an online poll about women's experiences on social media platforms more generally, um, including Twitter, but also social media platforms, other social media platforms in November 2017 across eight countries, including the UK and the US. And our findings show that around 23 percent, so almost a quarter of women polled experienced some form of uh, abuse or harassment on social media platforms. And of that, about a quarter of that uh, included threats of physical or sexual assault. And almost half of that um, abuse included misogynistic or sexist commentary. Um, so when you take that, when you take the levels of abuse that women are experiencing, coupled with the ineffective reporting system of Twitter, which is that when women are reporting this to Twitter, Twitter's own reporting system that they have a policy, a hateful conduct policy that says this, you know, this type of content is not allowed on the platform. Um, that reporting system is both ineffective and inconsistent. And that's leading some women on the platform to either silence or censor themselves as a result. And um, when, what about the psychological effect? You had an interesting, some interesting statistics on that as well in a separate study. 
Yeah, so in that same study, we also asked about the psychological impact um, of abuse and harassment on social media platforms. And across all of the countries polled, um, you know, the women who experienced abuse or harassment, um, over half of them said that as a result of experiencing abuse or harassment, they had experienced um, stress, anxiety, or panic attacks. Um, they were less able to focus on everyday tasks. Um, about 57% of women, for example, said that they had a feeling of apprehension when even thinking about using the internet or social media. 54% said that they had a feeling of apprehension um, when just receiving, even when just receiving social media notifications. Um, you know, and across all countries, around two thirds of the women um, stated uh, who experienced abuse harassment stated feeling a sense of powerlessness after experiencing that abuse. So, you know, the psychological impact of online abuse is very under-researched, um, but it can't be ignored. And there's definitely a risk of psychological harm caused by such abuse, um, especially when the response to that abuse goes ignored or um, is not dealt with adequately by social media companies. And we know women are therefore continuing to endure that abuse because it's not being dealt with. And you're, you know, these assessments are very timely. And I'm seeing uh, at the very same time, for example, mm-hmm. in Mar- that same month, your report came out. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Berners-Lee announced the web's <clears throat> 29th birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, in and and the fact that half of the world population is now online, mm-hmm. and but he asked the question, um, he wondered whether the rest of the world wants to connect to the web we have today, yeah. and it was striking. And let me just add one other just anecdote. Uh, so one of our former guests on our show uh, er, er, years ago, William Powers, who wrote the book Hamlet's Blackberry about you know, the need, the role of technology and the need to disconnect, um, just tweeted this morning, everyone my age wishes they lived in a time before the internet. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a, a 20-year-old he heard over breakfast this morning. Um, and, and so it's interesting that we have all this happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there seems to be a, an unhappiness with um, the way the tools are being used and you have the Facebook scandal. I actually refer to it as the internet of how. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote a piece where it looks like, you know, referring to Hal from the movie 2001, where, the, you know, the machines have, have gotten the better of us. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think there's definitely this large-scale problem of violence and abuse against women on Twitter, and there's lots of other um, issues I'm sure that we could talk about. Um, but... I think it's really also important to look at all of the positive positive aspects of Twitter and other social media platforms. Um, so, you know, first of all, I just want to, I really want to point out that women want to be on Twitter. One of the reasons that we did this research is because Twitter and other social media platforms can be an incredibly empowering space for women, um, especially women from marginalized communities. You know, it provides a platform to connect and debate and engage and and share information with each other um, and express, you know, it allows people to express themselves in a way that they may not be able to do offline. Um, And I think that's incredibly important. And that's why these platforms should be addressing the human rights implications of the abuse and the violence that's happening on them. Um, You know, because what's happening online is a, you know, is a manifestation of the existing discrimination and violence and abuse that women face offline. So I think you know, for us to c- come into these platforms thinking that everything that happens offline uh, would just simply disappear when you go into the online world, um, it just simply isn't true. And we see that, you know, testimony after testimony um, of women after women saying that this is her experience online for speaking out about a certain issue or sometimes just simply being a woman speaking out online. So I think, you know, the, the internet has um, a lot of, you know, great qualities about it. Um, Twitter can be such an incredibly power, power, empowering place for women. You know, you can see that with Me Too and Time's Up and how important True. Twitter was for, you know, those movements, for women's rights. Um, but at the same time, these the same women that want to be participating in these conversations, some of them are being silenced or censored because they are not allowed to participate in those conversations equally or freely or without fear of violence. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Twitter's response to this and why this might be a violation of human rights. After these messages, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only at webmasterradio.fm. 
Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact B-R-A-S-C-O at WebmasterRadio.fm now and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email B-R-A-S-C-O at WebmasterRadio.fm now. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with... WebmasterRadio.fm, the destination for education and entertainment. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Asmina Drodia and about um, Amnesty National's landmark report on Twitter and uh, its toxicity called Toxic Twitter, Violence and Abuse Against Women Online, and links to the report and some of the video footage we've referenced, as well as background on Asmenia and Amnesty, as usual, are available on our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, and follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. I do have one announcement. Um, we recently did a show on an issue that Amnesty is following on uh, the, the plight of Rafe Badawi, and over the weekend I was able to meet uh, Rafe Badawi's widow when uh, the Los Angeles Press Club gave its Daniel Pearl Award um, for c- courageousness in journalism to him, and uh, his wife was there to accept the award. It was a pleasure to meet her, um, but unfortunately Rafe is still in jail now in his sixth year there, so it's a story we will continue to monitor. But before the break, we were talking about um, Twitter, its toxicity, and uh, we really haven't talked about what its response has been. Um, and it's looking at the report, it, it seems that very they knew very well that this is a problem. In fact, there's a quote from its former CEO, Dick Costello, we suck at dealing with abuse and trolls on the platform, and we've sucked at it for years. That's not very encouraging. <laughs> No, and I mean, I think, you know, in the report, you can see multiple statements by Twitter executives um, addressing the issue, acknowledging the issue, which I think is very important, um, acknowledging that this is a problem. I think, um, you know, the the issue and what we raise in the report is it's one thing to acknowledge that this is a problem, but then it's also very important for the social media company to start responding to the problem. Um, and under the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, companies have a responsibility to respect human rights. Um, and, you know, for Twitter, that means that, you know, responding to reports of abuse on violence um, and abuse against women on its platform, for example, um, needs to be both consistent and transparent and adequate. And and so where where are they on responding to this? I mean, you keep here. I, I go to I go to panels and I've I've seen you know, lawyers from Twitter saying that we take harassment seriously, but then you know I go to another panel six months later. It says Twitter still isn't doing enough. We where where are we today? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Twitter, you know, to give it credit, it has taken a number of steps to try um, and address this problem. Um, For example, even since our report has been released, um, they've taken new measures to relegate uh, disruptive content, uh, the quote-unquote disruptive content. Um, For example, they uh, just acquired a company last week, I think, um, that aims to, you know, tackle abuse and harassment and spam on the platform. Um, They also have this healthy conversations initiative uh, to try and improve the health of conversations on Twitter. And, you know, all of these are obviously welcome and any steps to try and tackle and address online abuse and violence on 
on Twitter um, is is important. Um, but I think it's really it's really important for us to highlight that as a company, Twitter has a specific responsibility to respect all human rights, um, and that includes the rights to non-discrimination and freedom of expression and opinion. Um, and they have a responsibility to take concrete steps to both avoid causing or contributing to abuses of those rights. So Twitter as a company needs to take action to identify and prevent and address for any human rights abuses that are happening um, or that are linked to its operations. Um, and they should be assessing on an ongoing and on a proactive basis how its, how its policies impact on users' rights. Um, such as their right to freely express themselves. So the guiding principles really lays out a framework of how Twitter should be addressing um, this issue from a human rights perspective. Um, and one of the key calls that we have on Twitter is to be far more transparent about how they're dealing with this issue. So I, I talked about the ineffective and inconsistent reporting mechanisms earlier. Um, right. And you know, when I spoke to, you know, we interviewed dozens of women, um, as I mentioned, mainly uh, high profile uh, female public figures. Many of the women who, you know, is, many of them have stopped uh, reporting, um, but for those that still do bother reporting um, or those who had in the past, almost all of them talked about how Twitter's reporting system was just either completely inconsistent um, with its own policies on hateful conduct and abuse. So something that was in, clearly in violation of Twitter's own uh, terms of service and hateful conduct and abuse policy when reported would come back as this is not in violation of our community standards, um, or they would report abuse to Twitter and they would never hear back from the company. So the reports would go into this sort of black hole, as they would say. Um, and I think when you have this ineffective reporting system, we, in order to try and help and you know um, give Twitter some more solutions on how to adequately deal with this issue, it's important for us to take really holistically understand their response and how they're dealing with the problem. So transparency is a very key component of um, Twitter's responsibilities under the guiding principles on business and human rights. So at the moment, we don't know much about, or anything at all, really about how many content moderators Twitter has, for example, to moderate um, or to you know respond to reports of abuse online. We don't know what languages they speak. We don't know what regions they're based in. We don't know how they're being trained on the terms of service. We don't know how they're being uh, trained to interpret violence and abuse um, against women or other identity-based abuse online. Um, you know, we don't have any idea how they're being trained on international human rights standards and freedom of expression to ensure that uh, legitimate expression isn't being restricted. Uh, we also don't know how many reports of abuse Twitter gets. We don't have this information disaggregated. So we don't know how many reports on the basis of gender or other identity-based um, abuse is being reported. We don't know how long it takes for Twitter to get back to the average user on reports of abuse. Um, you know, we don't know what the response to that abuse is. We don't have specific examples of what um, Twitter considers to be in breach of their own community standards. So it's very difficult because at the moment uh, we're asking for a lot of information because Twitter is failing to be transparent in its operations and how it's um, addressing the human rights abuses that are taking place. And why do you, what do you think is driving the lack of transparency? Is it a competitive thing? They don't want to um, do anything that, or give any information that maybe Facebook or a competitor might use or just uh, they, they don't want you to see it. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we had um, multiple conversations with, with Twitter before and, you know, after the, the launch of our research. And, you know, I'm hopeful that they will, um, you know, take the lead um, and follow suit. So both um, Facebook and YouTube have recently come out with content moderation reports. Um, and, you know, we've had some constructive talks with Twitter. But, you know, I, it, when we spoke with them uh, prior to the research at least being launched, um, you know, their response was that the information that we requested about, for specifically about the disaggregated number of reports of abuse they receive and how they respond, they said that that uh, information could be or is can be both uninformative and potentially misleading uh, because of some people who report abuse um, in a misleading way on the platform to try and silence other people's voices. So I guess they are talking about sort of false reports of abuse. Um, and I think that's incredibly important and context in any uh, transparency report is important. But 
that doesn't negate their responsibility uh, to be transparent in their outreach. Um, and I think it's really important to, to, in the ways that Twitter has been um, transparent in the past, has been a bit vague. So in July 2017, they stated that they were taking action on 10 times the number of abusive accounts every day compared to the same time last year. And again, that's, you know, that sounds like it's good news. But without some whole numbers, it's really difficult to understand how effective this is um, in relative relative to the the true scale and nature of the problem right is it is it ten times you know, response because the the number amount of abuse has increased you know fifteen fold or exactly it, exactly those are issues now when this report was released did were you targeted uh, yeah amnesty um myself and amnesty colleagues and the amnesty account uh, received um a lot of um uh, you know quite quite a bit of abuse and um, misogynistic commentary um as a as a as a you know as a woman as a woman of color, there were a lot of precautions that I had to take before um, we released the research and and that of my amnesty colleagues as well. Um, and the unfortunate part about all of that was that when we received abusive comments and. Um, in relation to the toxic Twitter report, um, the irony of which is not lost on all of us, um, we would report the abuse because you know we wanted to show and see ourselves how effective Twitter's reporting system is. Um, and despite reporting the abuse, uh, most of the time the reports came back, um, despite being expedited because we had contact with Twitter. Um, so first of all, we were in a very privileged position, which most of the users, especially users from marginalized communities, don't have access to senior teams at Twitter. Um, but when we did receive uh, the response, most of the time it came back that this was not in violation of Twitter's community standards um, and there was no um, action taken on the accounts or the, or the tweets, um, which, you know, and in since our report as well. One of the journalists that we um, interviewed, Jessica Valenti, who is a female author and a, and a Guardian journalist, um, she had posted on Twitter a few weeks ago um, a death threat that she received on Twitter that she reported. And then she also posted um, the, a screenshot of Twitter's response, which was that uh, this was not in violation of the community standards. The, the tweet, I believe, had a photo of a gun in it and was basically insinuating that she should be shot or someone would should shoot her. Um, and it was it was because she's a high-profile journalist that the tweet got some traction, and you had high-level executives from Twitter coming in, you know, um, taking act, taking appropriate action and apologizing. But you know, Jessica was also very right to point out again that she's in a position of privilege, um, being a female journalist with you know hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. And what about all of the other folks out there who are getting similar um, death threats and rape threats um, and don't have that kind of access um, to to large audiences to to take notice and are receiving, you know. In inconsistent responses from Twitter, and even you know, uh, I, I represent victims of cyber harassment, mm -hmm. and uh, and so sometimes you know they shoot the messenger. You know, mm -hmm. I've, you know, when the people you sue who are harassing people, they then decide to go after you. And one of our most loyal listeners, I believe, is one of those people who love, loves to harass us online. And even though she's been convicted of uh, making death threats, and but um, it's you know it's, it's frustrating. And and my my experience with Twitter has been mixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that inconsistency, um, again, has come up over and over and over again um, in the fact that, you know, um, people will report abuse on the platform and their own application of their own rules on hateful conduct and abuse are inconsistently applied, which is why transparency is so important for us to understand what is allowed on Twitter's platform and what isn't. Um, and it's also helpful, you know, and will also, again, help promote legitimate expression being kept on the platform um, to ensure that, you know, just because something is being reported, we're not automatically calling, for example, just to make this clear, we're not saying that anytime um, an abusive tweet is posted that Twitter should necessarily take down that content. Um, you know, Twitter as a social media company has a varying degree of responsibility in terms of how it should respond to violence and abuse, depending on the the type of violence or abuse that's being reported. Um, but for us to for us as users to truly understand what the platform considers to be abusive and how it was going to react and and respond to reports of um, abuse of different you know degrees they need to be far more transparent in communicating to their users um, you know what they mean by that and being far um, better at sort of enabling and empowering users as well to be able to curate a safer and a less toxic Twitter experience so Twitter has loads of safety and privacy features um, 
available on its platform, but very few people know how to use them. Um, and they do very little, if at all, any public campaigning or awareness raising, um, especially for targeted groups on the platform on how to protect themselves online. So I think there's a lot more that Twitter can be doing aside from the reporting system um, as you know, and in addition to the, the transparency calls as well to sort of raise awareness that you know, violence and abuse happens on the platform, but there are certain ways that you can keep yourself safe um, or try to try to keep yourself safe at least. Um, and then what the risks uh, may be when associated with any of those uh, privacy or security features. So for example, they have a mute filter where you can mute um, certain notifications or certain content, I believe. Um, but one of the problems with that mute notification is that if you have a, a mute notification uh, or mute filter on you know, a certain account and that account is sending you a rape threat or a death threat, you don't know that's happening and therefore you right. don't know the level of risk that you are actually facing. So I think there are these security measures that can be really helpful in creating a, you know, a, a safer, less toxic Twitter experience, but there's also um, downsides and you know, Twitter needs to be communicating this and really, really empowering users to, to use the platform in a safe way. Now, one of the things that, that struck me about the report, that, and I guess Linda, the power of it, Twitter has been, these issues have been raised before. You know, mm -hmm. I mentioned the shows we did. Kristen V. Brown, you know, wrote a whole piece on, you know, as a reporter dealing with Twitter. And, but what was different here was, one, you had a group like Amnesty International, widely mm -hmm. respected. But two, you, you had that this, the conclusion that this was a human rights violation. Mm -hmm. And that gets people's attention. And I'm curious on what the response was within the larger community, but also Twitter itself, to this being tagged as a human rights violator. Um, you know, I recently just uh, returned back from the Human Rights Council uh, in Geneva, the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva last week. Um, and while I was there, two UN um, independent experts, they're called special rapporteurs, um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and Opinion, <laughs> and the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, Its Causes and Consequences, both highlighted violence against women online um, um, and its human rights impact um, in their separate thematic report. So the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women actually literally wrote and published a report about violence against women online and its causes and its consequences um, and framed the human rights impact of this issue. Um, and the, the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and Opinion also published a report on content moderation um, in the digital age um, and, you know, the issue of harassment and abuse against, um, you know, targeted group, marginalized groups and women in particular was also raised. So I think you know, Amnesty's report is echoing this sort of wider um, rhetoric and narrative that, again, as you know, as I mentioned this at the beginning, violence and abuse against women online isn't something that can be easily ignored. It is not something that is just happening um, that, you know, is a mere annoyance. Um, it is a human rights issue. It has human rights. It has a human rights impact on how women express themselves online. It's a discrimination issue. It's a freedom of expression issue. Uh, it can be, you know, a privacy issue. Um, and I think when we look at solutions, the human rights framework can help provide solutions for social media companies like Twitter um, to, you know, uh, address this issue adequately. Well, we're going to take a short break. We come back. We're going to talk more about this report and um, other things coming on at Amnesty International after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interact into your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, 
So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Online anytime. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back and we're talking about this landmark MC International Report on Twitter and human rights violations with Azim Adrodiev in London. And uh, um, just so you know, next week is uh, our show will be on the 4th of July. And uh, our producer Brasco and I, we're going to sing our favorite patriotic songs. But um, as Mina informed us, that would be a human rights violation. So we will not be broadcasting a new episode on July 4th. Um, sorry, Brasco. But... Um, Thanks for the counsel, Zmina. But <laughs> so um, a common response is, "Hey, it's it's free speech. You know, get over it. You know, um, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. What what's the response to that?" Sure. I mean, I think, like I said earlier, um, this is not about necessarily restricting um, all all content on on the internet. Um, but I think it's incredibly important to look at when when people are responding that this is free speech. I think it's important to think about whose free speech we're talking about. Um, and when you look at the impact of violence and abuse against women on Twitter um, and their how they then express themselves express themselves when they experience such abuse and um, experience you know an inadequate response from Twitter, it's women who are being, or some women at least, that um, are being silenced or censored as a result. So, you know, most of the women that I interviewed and spoke to talked about the varying ways that they restricted their freedom of expression online as a result of the abuse um, or the violence that they experienced. So, you know, women um, either will limit their interactions online, so they'll take social media breaks, um, they will censor themselves. Um, You know, so many of the women said, you know, they have to think five or six times before they post a tweet because they have to think about, you know, am I ready to deal with the, you know, the potential backlash for this tweet right. today? Um, and other women simply leave the platform uh, because they are just unable to deal with the the volume or the type of abuse, um, you know, and, and, and endure that. And so I think it's, um, and you know, this online poll that we conducted with Ipsos Mori in November 2017, um, when we asked women about their experiences of abuse on social media platform. Um, of the 23% of women that said they had experienced some form of abuse or harassment on social media platforms, um, of those women, 78% said that they changed the way that they use social media platforms in some way as a result. And um, 32% of women said that they changed the way that they expressed themselves about a certain issue or a certain topic as a result of um, experiencing abuse or harassment. So I think when we're looking at free expression, it's very clear that women's free expression is being, um, you know, you know, uh, restricted and limited, um, and you know, women are being silenced or censored because of the abuse or the harassment that they face, um, and that's a human rights issue, and that's something that we should be focusing on. There's an, another way to look at this too, in that, and this has been a, a constant debate here in the United States, you ever since President Obama was elected. And uh, does this is this evidence of uh, a kind of um, misogyny and sexism that um, you know has grown, or it's just revealed something that was already there, and um, or is this just amplified because of you know bots and other things that have, uh, these are just the acts of minority? I think that's something that we're trying to get our arms around here in the United States is, you know, particularly with racism, some other things, you Mm -hmm. know, to what extent does this reveal a problem that we have or is this just amplifying a a small group? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's an interesting question. And I think um, from from the experiences of the women of the experiences of the women that I spoke to, um, especially, you know, women of color and women 
from you know marginalized communities, the the type of you know discrimination and the type of violence and abuse that they faced um, was very much identity based um, and targeted their different and ide different identities. And this was part of their you know this was ref a reflection of the wider discrimination that they face um, you know offline and in the physical world. Um, and I, I'm consciously not saying the real world because I think that you know this you know, the, the online and the offline world that are, you know, our digital real, our digital and physical realities are becoming less and less blurred. Um, and that our, our experiences and our life on Twitter or Facebook or, or Snapchat, for example, um, that is the real world for many of us. Um, and I think that women's experiences really echo and reflect um, women's experiences on Twitter really echo and reflect their experiences offline. I think what a platform like Twitter does is that it can sort of proliferate this type of content in a speed and in a way that we're not used to. Um, and, you know, obviously with anonymity, um, which, you know, I must say can be, is an incredibly important um, way, you know, a, a tool to express um, yourself online for many people around the world uh, who wouldn't otherwise be able to do so. But in some instances, anonymity um, can also help, you know, uh, propel forms of abuse against women online because they don't know where that abuse is coming from um, and whether and how, uh, you know, how real or not those threats are, for example. So I think it's the fact that the speed and the nature of which the abuse that women experience online um, is, is, is that's what's different than uh, what, you know, what women are experiencing offline. So it's not necessarily um, the fact that it doesn't exist or that it's new, it's just the way that it manifests um, is is sort of new to us all. And and you make a good point about the the the, the online world versus the real world. Um, they, they both are real. And and just to highlight a different point, while it's a, it's a different technology, um, but it still is through a communications medium. You know, people forget that. Uh, radio broadcasters in Rwanda were convicted of genocide for you know, their broadcast inciting mm -hmm. genocide and, and calling for extermination of the, you know, the fellow Rwandans. And, uh, and so it can have an impact in, in, in what happens offline and what, or online will lead to actions offline. In yeah. fact, there are even studies here in the United States on, on, on cyber harassment that mm -hmm. one in five harassers will actually do something offline. You know, and, and yeah, in Amnesty's um, online poll, the one that we commissioned with Ipsos Mori, um, of the women, of the 23% of women who experience abuse or harassment um, on, online, 41% said that they feared um, for their physical safety as a result. So I think this, you know, sometimes not knowing um, if the abuse is a, you know, um, a credible threat or not, um, it doesn't matter in terms of how it affects you psychologically, um, because you can't just ignore it because you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know if it can be ignored. And, and so um, as we wind down, what advice do you have for women and people of color online? You know, I think you know, everyone has the right to express themselves freely and equally and without fear online. And these spaces are incredibly important um, for, you know, women and people of color in particular to express themselves and to, you know, build communities and create solidarity or just talk about, you know, you know, whatever you ate for dinner or, you know, what, what, what you think about the latest episode of a popular television program, you know, we should all have the right to freely express ourselves. Um, and that's a human right. And as a company, Twitter has a responsibility to respect our human rights. Um, and I think it's incredibly important that, you know, we as users of these platforms, um, you know, hold these companies to account for um, meeting their human rights responsibilities. Um, so, you know, Amnesty had um, a big campaign when we launched our toxic Twitter report uh, where we targeted Jack Dorsey um, and, you know, we're asking him to, um, you know, enforce his own rules on Twitter's um, hateful conduct and abuse policy and also tell us how they're doing it. So I think, you know, we as users have a, a lot of power, um, although it may not always feel like that, but we do in terms of how we hold these companies accountable for their, um, their human rights responsibilities. And I think it's also really important to um, understand these social media platforms and understand our privacy and security settings and understand how we can keep ourselves safe online, um, you know, um, 
ideally it wouldn't take this much um, onus on on users and you know this much additional burden on women to keep themselves safe but in the meantime um, until this problem is sorted out it's incredibly important to learn how to keep yourself safe on Twitter and other social media platforms if, if people want to learn more about you and, and the Amnesty Technology Project where should they go um, you can check us out on Twitter <laughs> uh, so it's at Amnesty Tech um, and you can find me on there as well on Twitter at Snazzy Azzy and uh, I, I do have to ask a question I, I, you are Canadian right I am, yes. So how will you be celebrating Canada Day? I um, will be celebrating with some Canadian friends and having a barbecue. And one of them got a Canada Day um, celebration pack from the High Commission. But I won't be celebrating Canada Day uh, because it's obviously um, rooted in some ugly history of the country. So I will be just celebrating being Canadian with some friends. There you have it. And uh, we want to thank you very much for joining us. And um, so for all our Canadian listeners, uh, happy Canada Day. And for our American listeners, um, have a happy 4th. We'll be back here for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report on July 11th. And we'll be talking about autonomous cars and the safety of them. So that should be an interesting show. Um, Check out our show notes again at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And as always, this is um, the Internet Law Center. Um, Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet firm. We do a lot of work in cyber harassment. And um, so we're happy to help if you're having issues. And thanks again to our guests. Definitely check out Amnesty. It's a great organization. Um, There's so many political prisoners who've been free because of their great work. And um, so it's worthy of your checking out and support. And um, Brasco, thanks for everything today. And uh, so until next week, this is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week and enjoy the holiday. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.